Hello once again, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Monolith Seeker. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is going to be the part three episode in our reincarnation series. Um, if you haven't been keeping up with this, the first episode is the children who remember past lives. And the second episode is the near-death experience research of Raymond Moody. I would recommend listening to both of those before listening to this one, but specifically, I would listen to the near-death experience research of Raymond Moody, because this is just going to be a continuation of that episode entirely. I went over the main elements of the common near-death experience and uh, a lot of the things that he came up with and discovered in his research. And in this episode, I'm going to be building on those concepts and talking about other researchers that took things in different directions or solidified his research. And I'm not gonna be going over all those things again. So like I said, I would, I would highly recommend stopping this right now and going back and doing that if you have not heard that already. For those of you who have heard that and are coming right through to this, then welcome. Thank you for coming back, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so much like in that episode, I would like to say up top, that this episode is going to be focusing on death and what happens after you die, mostly through the lens of near-death experiences and the things that we can learn from that. But I'm going to touch on some pretty heavy topics like suicide specifically and um, a little bit of talking about hell. Uh, I would like to think, as I've said before, that in covering these topics that I would be bringing forward some information and some points of view that would be encouraging and uplifting, but I still understand that this might be a heavy topic for the time. But with that said, uh, much like I said in the last episode where I covered these things, I think that this is a very pertinent topic, something that we should be looking into now more than ever, uh, looking into death because it is one of the scarier things that we have to deal with, and if we're not facing our fears, then what kind of work are we really doing? Um, that's all just my opinion though. Again, if this is not something you want to listen to, I totally understand. But without any further introduction and front-loading with warnings here, uh, we can jump right into talking about death. And uh, we'll start off with that by talking about the, the other researchers on the uh, near-death experience scene. Uh, there are a ton of people who do this research all over the world. This is such a heavily researched topic. Uh, people do studies of it in so many different places, looking for so many different things. There are so many books uh, written by researchers, doctors, psychologists, um, you know, different types of scientists, just experiencers. There's so much out there that I'm barely scratching the surface. I don't want to present this as if it's a complete view in any way, shape, or form, but these are kind of the heavy hitters uh, in Western culture uh, at this time, I guess, is really the, the most qualifiers I can put on it. So uh, we'll start this off by talking about a man named Michael Sabom. Uh, Michael Sabom was a heart surgeon. He was a doctor in Florida, and uh, he got into near-death experiences through his church. Uh, Michael Sabon was a Christian, and he was at a Sunday school service, and somebody came in 
and gave a presentation on Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, that came out in 1975. And uh, he sat and listened through the whole thing. And at the end of it, she asked if there were any medical professionals in the group there. And he raised his hand. He was the only one. And she asked, well, what do you think? What do you think about all of this? And he said, well, I think it's bullshit. Like, I don't, I don't believe in any of this. Um, because Michael Sabom, uh, if you remember from listening to the last episode, I mentioned him before, he is kind of skeptical about all of this. Even though he does the research on it, his view has always been that when you die, you are dead. You go in the ground and that is the end of it. Um, he didn't believe in what the church was telling him happened after people died. He just went to church for more of the moral aspect and the community aspect. But when it came to people talking about, you know, going to heaven after you die and things like that, he just kind of tuned it out and thought of it as wishful thinking. Um, so the woman who presented this to his Sunday school class was then asked to present it to the whole church at large at a later date. So she called up Michael Sabom and said, hey, I know you don't believe in this stuff, but because you are a medical professional and, uh, you know, the woman who was giving the presentation was more in the psychology field. Uh, she thought that it would be good to have him on stage with her to field, you know, medical questions. And uh, he agreed. And, uh, you know, she asked him as part of the presentation, would you mind reading the book? So he read the book. He read Life After Life. He was, again, like, you know, this all sounds cool, but uh, I don't believe any of it. So she said, you know, that's, that's totally fine. I, I didn't expect you to change your mind. But, um, you know, just because you are working uh, with patients who are recovering from heart surgery, a lot of these people on your recovery floor, you know, will have had brushes with death. People, you know, during open heart surgery, people's hearts stop all the time. And, you know, you don't always end up having open heart surgery because you're the health, you know, in the healthiest situation sometimes. Those people have had brushes with death beforehand that led to the open heart surgery. So he had access to, you know, a large pool of people who have had their heart stopped before and had to be revived at the hospital. So um, he agreed to go ahead and ask some of them. He got permission from the people on the that, that ran the hospital to do a little bit of this research. And he just asked around on the recovery floor, uh, you know, all the people who had had brushes with death, who had been... Uh, you know, temporarily dead and been revived. And with that first round of questions, he got three people that told him that they had near-death experiences that so closely matched what Raymond Moody was saying in his book. You know, there was beings of light, there was uh, the dark tunnel, there was, you know, scenes of, you know, gardens or you know, kind of somewhat heavenly scenes. People were seeing dead relatives. They were having life reviews. Um, you know, and this was just in the first three people that he didn't only ask three people. There were more than three people on the floor that he spoke with. But within that first round, he found three people and he was blown away by that immediately. So he took that information to the presentation. And then afterwards, he talked to the woman who was giving the presentation and said, you know, if this is going to be something that people are really going to be talking about and the people that I spoke with about this that had these experiences, you know, they all seemed really genuine and very moved by what happened to them. This is something that was very life-changing for them. So if there is something to this, there needs to be a more scientific approach taken 
to gathering this information. And that was kind of Michael Sabom's mission after that. He conducted research in the hospital where he worked. Um, he got as wide of a sample as he could out of all of those people. He talked to atheists, uh, Jewish people, Christians, and I believe there were a couple Muslims on the list as well. Um, you know, he really only had access to the one hospital that he was working out of for the book that I was reading. So this was kind of a, you know, closed research center here for him, but he made the most out of all the information that he could get. Um, he broke down, you know, how many people of different sexes had these experiences, uh, different races, different um, economic status. He kind of broke it all down into these different numbers and charts and things. And, you know, it's all interesting. It's all, uh, it's all relevant to the research in some way, shape, or form, but it does not make for the most interesting reading because it is a lot of the same with Ian Stevenson's book. It's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, hear me out. <laughs> a lot of arguing both sides and understanding where people are coming from and how this seems so crazy. And, you know, it'd be easy to be skeptical about this, but uh, he talks about how this journey did change his life for sure. And he notes that by talking about one of the first women that he ever interviewed about her near-death experience. Uh, he interviewed her again several years later just to gather a little more information and talk to her. And she commented that the first time that he interviewed her, he seemed to be doing it begrudgingly. Um, and she was like, you know, I didn't think you were really interested. You seemed to question everything that I was saying and be very skeptical. And like you thought I might be a little bit crazy. And now you seem so much more open and inviting to this concept. You seem to be accepting what I'm telling you. There seems to be a big change in your life since you started doing this research. And he admits that that definitely happened. But he is one of the researchers that kind of holds out the idea that, you know, really we don't know what this is. We have no idea. Um, we know and we can kind of gather that there was something to it, but it's hard to say that this for sure is proof of an afterlife because all of these people have come back. And there are reasons to question that for sure, but there are also a lot of reasons that, you know, really the spike in near-death experiences happening and being reported happened with the uprising in technology to revive people, to start people's hearts again. You know, once we learned how to start doing these things, these reports started coming back more and more. So, you know, one could argue that these people were having these experiences all along. It's just that they were never brought back to tell them about it. And now they are. And it's something that we hear about more often. But there have been obviously cases reported about this, like I talked about in the last episode, uh, all the way back to ancient Egypt, Plato, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, all of that stuff uh, shares elements with what most people talk about in their near-death experiences. And it can kind of be inferred that, well, it's, it's directly related in Plato's writings, but it can kind of be inferred that some of these other writings came about from people having these experiences. But these other books and these other ancient texts seem to go a lot further with it. So, yeah, uh, that's all I have to say about Michael Sabom necessarily. If you're interested in that story, if you want to see what he brought to the table, you can look up Reflections on Death. Um, I think I found my copy at Goodwill or someplace like that, a used bookstore. Um, but, yeah, check that out if it sounds interesting to you. But the next person I want to talk about is a researcher named Melvin Morse. 
Um, Melvin Morse is a pediatrician and he started doing near-death research because at his clinic in Seattle where he worked, uh, a young girl was brought in one day who had drowned in the pool at the YMCA. And the scene was kind of described as, you know, she was in the pool uh, and at the time that she went in, there was a ton of people in there. And then uh, they went to shut the pool down and when everybody got out, she was just in the bottom of the pool. Nobody knew how long she had been there. Luckily, there was a doctor who was at the pool that day and he was able to revive her on the scene. However, uh, she still was non-reflexive and non-responsive in a lot of ways. Her pupils were fixed. She had no gag reflex. None of her, uh, you know, knee reflexes or any of that stuff was working. She was like completely non-responsive and catatonic. So they brought her into the clinic and they, uh, Melvin Morse did a CAT scan on her. And uh, he, and told the family that the prognosis did not look good. Uh, she was more than likely going to be catatonic or uh, in some way brain damaged for the rest of her life. But to his surprise, three days later, she made a full recovery. Um, she came out of it and the first thing she said when she came out of it was she, she just started asking questions about uh, where this person was or where that person was. And none of the names were familiar. They weren't people that she knew in her everyday life. They weren't people she'd ever met, nobody she was related to. The nurses were really confused by this and then she passed out again. Uh, when she woke up again, um, Melvin Morris talked to her and asked her, you know, what happened? Because he was trying to figure out if she had a seizure in the pool or somebody hit her in the head somehow, uh, what exactly caused her to drown? And uh, she said, oh, do you mean when I went to go see Heavenly Father? And he was like, oh, that's not what I was expecting to hear. But yeah, tell me about that. If that's relevant, then yeah, tell me tell me about that. That sounds interesting. So she then launches into this story about how um, after she had gone under the water, everything went black. And then she moved through a tunnel, much like in the Raymond Moody stuff. But then she saw a golden-haired woman reach out to her and take her hand. And this woman walked her through the tunnel into a place that she perceived to be heaven. And in this area of heaven, she met all of these people. There were all these people around that uh, she just said she knew. She said that, that, you know, she just had like a connection with and already knew them somehow. But they were not people she knew from earth. They were people that she knew on this plane, on this other side. Um, she said that there was a border around everything, but she couldn't see beyond it because there were flowers growing so high that she couldn't see through them. Um, she said that while she was there, she met Jesus, who then escorted her over to Heavenly Father. And she sat on Heavenly Father's lap and he asked her, uh, would you like to stay here? Or would you like to go back down to earth? And her response was, I want to stay here. This is nice. This is great. Which, you know, if you listen to the last episode, then you know that's, <laughs> that's pretty common. People get really comfortable over there. They feel like this is where they belong. But he asked, it, asked her another way. He said, you know, really, if you stay here, you can't see your mother again. Do you want to see your mother again? And she said, well, yes, I do. And then she just woke up back in her body. And that's when she started asking the nurses questions about where these different people were. Um, so, yeah, this was really fascinating to Melvin Morse. He was really interested in the idea. He started doing research on near-death experiences and things like that. And uh, he 
as he was doing research himself, he was reading Raymond Moody's books, he was reading different books on parapsychology and things like that. Uh, he said that he got so excited reading Life After Life that he was writing down study ideas, case study ideas in the margins of the books. Um, so he goes back to this girl's parents and he's like, okay, I want to know what kind of spiritual training this girl has because um, this sounds very Christian based. This sounds like something she might have learned in church. And uh, he found out that this little girl did not go to church. Uh, her family was kind of vaguely religious, but what she had been told about death, when he asked her, when he asked this little girl what death was, uh, she said, well, death is when they put your body in a box and they bury you in the ground. And he said, okay, that's great. But what was, what was this that you experienced? She said, well, it was like dying, but I didn't all the way die because you didn't put me in the box and bury me in the ground. And he's like, okay, yeah, this is a very grounded kid who understands at least there's a difference between life and death. And this wasn't exactly a dream. But he asked her, you know, what was what was death like? What was this other side like? And she said, oh, you'll see. It's great. When Whenever it happens to you, you'll see. It'll be wonderful. And uh, he was kind of taken aback by that as well. When he talked to the parents and asked, like, what kind of uh, training, what kind of knowledge has this girl been given about, you know, life after death, uh, they told him that all they had ever told her was that death was like getting in a boat and crossing to a foreign land you've never seen before. That was her entire education about death. That's all she'd ever been told about it. She hadn't been told that Jesus would meet her, that there would be a woman with golden hair, that she would see God, that there was heaven. She hadn't been told any of that. She was just told that you would get on a boat and go across the sea into an unknown land. And that was not the experience she had in her near-death experience. So he came to the conclusion that this experience obviously was not informed by her training, this was something else entirely. So from there, uh, Dr. Morse goes into this research study where he starts looking at specifically uh, children under the age of 18. That's That was the swath of the population that was his specialty because he was a pediatrician. And that was who he felt that he could talk to the best about this to get the best information because he believed that they were less inundated. Children were less inundated with the pressures of society to not talk about these things. And also they had not been fully ingratiated into whatever belief system that uh, they were being raised in and that they might be more open to these things. You would think that would be counterintuitive, but when he started you know, talking to these children, the vast majority of them, if not all of them, uh, gave a different explanation of their near-death experience than what they had been taught about what happens after you die. It didn't match up at all. What they were hearing in church and what they were actually experiencing when they had these near-death experiences were completely different. Another thing that Melvin Morse is very well known for is his research into control sets, the people who didn't have these experiences and not so much just the people who had brushes with death and didn't have these experiences, but people who were in similar situations entirely um, that would have the experience that, uh, th there was actually a thing for a while and, and it obviously still exists. It's something that people try to use to explain away near-death experiences uh, and it is called transient depersonalization. 
And it is basically like an extreme form of disassociation where you view yourself from the outside sometimes or you project yourself into a different environment because uh, the environment that you're in is either too stressful or painful or something like that. So he did a lot of research on that because that was something that he was curious about because a lot of people were trying to say that that's all that near-death experiences are. People are becoming really afraid of dying and then they just project themselves into this other place. So he did a lot of research on that and found that the reports of that and the reports of near-death experiences do not match up whatsoever. Um, and where he did a lot of this research was within children who had either terminal or very severe illnesses that brought them close to death, but not to the point where they needed to be revived. The children who actually had their heart stop and needed to be revived that he would talk to, many of them would have full-blown near-death experiences that matched, you know, the Raymond Moody model and all of these other researchers' models that, you know, it kind of lined up with all of these different things. Whereas people who did not die, they did not have to be revived, they had this, sometimes would have this transient depersonalization or this, you know, extreme disassociation, and it was nothing like a near-death experience. Sometimes they would just be somewhere peaceful that they were familiar with, other times it would turn into some kind of nightmare where they would talk about seeing doctors with big syringes or monsters or all these other things that had none of the same elements of the near-death experience. So uh, he was able to kind of put that to bed pretty, uh, you know, pretty soundly. He was able to rule that out. Um, he also talked to a lot of these people who were on heavy painkillers and drugs. Uh, because a lot of people tried to say that drugs are the thing that make this happen. And what he found was the exact opposite, much like other people. I think I, I mentioned this in the last episode, but um, he found that people who were on things like Valium, Morphine, these heavy painkillers, uh, they didn't have near-death experiences. And the ones who did have them when they were put on Morphine or Valium or these other things, the experience would be dulled. And uh, that actually led to a theory of his that he actually believes, uh, he says, you know, he acknowledges that this may not be scientific. Uh, it's just something that he feels in his heart that anybody who has a brush with death has a near-death experience. It's just that most of these people are brought back uh, with the assistance of these heavy drugs and, you know, they're heavily medicated afterwards and that that might be stifling the memory of this near-death experience. So. Um, you know, I thought that was an interesting theory. Who knows if, there, if it holds any water or not. Uh, it seems to me that the people who need to have their life change or need to have this happen have the experience. So who knows? Who really knows what drives it? Um, so yeah, his research is wonderful. Uh, he has a lot of really crazy stories. There's a story about um, a girl that was revived after falling into Puget Sound into the water there and her dad had to dive down deep to, to find her. She was in this deep, dark part of the water. And the only reason he was able to find her is because her body lit up. He said her whole body was like bathed in white light. And if that had not happened, if she had not been literally glowing on the bottom of the, uh, of the sound there, then he would have never found her and she would have stayed there and been dead forever. She had a really wild near-death experience. He's got a lot of crazy stories in his research. Um, I would definitely recommend 
picking up his stuff. I have only read little blurbs and listened to him speak on the internet, so uh, I <laughs> I do not know the names of his books. I, I have not read any of them, but his research sounds interesting to me, so I would recommend it to you. Okay, um, I don't think I mentioned this before, but I'm taking most of this information uh, not from specific books I've read by these people, but uh, there's a book called The Light Beyond that Raymond Moody wrote that I talked about in the last episode. And in that book, he has a section on other near-death experience researchers, and several of them wrote him little sections of this book for them to present their own studies. That's where I'm getting a lot of this information from. Some of this is from um, stuff I've seen on the internet as well. I'm just trying to break this down as quickly and painlessly as possible for you people. Um, so, yeah, let's see here. The next person I want to talk about is a man named Michael Grasso. Um, Michael Grasso is a philosopher. He got a doctorate in philosophy from uh, Columbia University. And his interest, as you might imagine, in near-death experiences is largely philosophical. Um, he really dives into in his explanation in this book and in interviews that I've seen, the connections between the near-death experience uh, research that's been done and the, the things that these people see and the, the ties that they have to ancient philosophical and mystic esoteric knowledge that you know has been around for thousands of years at this point. Um, much like Raymond Moody, he really likes to draw the parallels between a lot of the things that Plato said and the things that pop up in these near-death experiences. Specifically, there's um, a parable that Plato tells through the lens of Socrates right before Socrates was executed about the true earth. And in this parable, it is kind of implied that we are all living underground in this uh, darkened state where we don't understand what's going on around us and through certain experiences we can be taken up to the true earth and talk with the gods and that is what he believes this is talking about is essentially what happens in these near-death experiences but one of the things he likes to point out is that there's a lot easier ways to have this experience than to die or almost die. Um, you know, he talks about meditation and prayer and, you know, different mystic states that you can come into, different, uh, you know, psychedelics, things like that. He believes that all of those are different ways to kind of glimpse this information without having to put your life on the line. Michael Grasso also talks a good bit about the um, Teutonic model of knowledge that Plato put forward and how Plato believed that we are never actually learning anything new, that all of the information in the entire universe is actually stored within us, in our true selves, in our higher selves, or our soul self, or our unconscious mind, the collective unconscious, whatever you want to call it. He believed that all the information of the universe was actually stored there already, and that rather than learning anything new, we are just bringing things forward. We are just remembering things into our conscious mind. And that is how knowledge and learning actually works. And uh, I don't know if Michael Grasso necessarily subscribes to that, but he points to that as maybe a reason 
that these people who have these near-death experiences seem to know where they are when they're there. They seem to be familiar with these places. And also, he thinks that that might have something to do with why people are so fascinated with near-death experiences because they are kind of bringing to life something within us that is laying dormant that we already know. And when we come into contact with these things, it kind of resonates with us and brings forward this information we already know and we get more hungry for it. And uh, you know, maybe he's just speaking that way as an avid researcher of these type of things. Uh, it's definitely done that for me, so I can say it's worked for me, but I've talked to other people about this when I've watched their eyes just completely glaze over. So, uh, you know, who knows? <laughs> who, who really knows how this how this works? So I find a lot of the things that Michael Grasso had to say in that little uh, that little section that he wrote in the book, and in interviews that I've watched with him, I find them all very fascinating. I would love to read anything by Michael Grasso. I can't find anything. He has two books on miracles that are a little more readily available, but I was still not able to get a hold of them. And I haven't been able to find anything that he's written on near-death experiences. So if you are in the know about any of this stuff, if you know where I could find any of that stuff, I would gladly uh, get try. I want to get my hands on some Michael Grasso to read because he seems like someone who I, I would just be fascinated to hear more of what he has to say on the subject and specifically about the people that he has uh, interviewed and researched on his own. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about something that he said in this later when I talk about negative near-death experiences. But now I think I'm going to shift into talking about another researcher by the name of Kenneth Ring. Uh, Kenneth Ring is a psychologist. He is a doctor of psychology. Um, and he got into this research by talking to one of his patients. He was, you know, working as a therapist and uh, seeing someone who had had a near-death experience while giving birth. Um, she started bleeding out on the table and she said everything went black and she kind of saw herself uh, just kind of appear. She just appeared in the corner of the room and was looking down on herself in this delivery room. And uh, she, in this space, uh, heard a voice that told her, you know, you're going to be okay. We're going to put you back in your body because you're not done here yet. Uh, by the way, don't name your son Harold like you were planning on it. Name your son Peter. And he's going to have some heart trouble early on, but it's going to be fixed pretty quickly. It's not going to be something that's a lasting problem for him. So just don't worry about it. Um, when she went back into her body, when they revived her, she came to and she said, you know, I'm gonna name my son Peter. And everything that she was told in this little vision happened. Her son had the heart trouble. Uh, it was fixed very quickly. It was not an issue. And you know, the, the son lived a happy, healthy life. So he heard about this and he was fascinated. He was really hooked on the idea of this. So he then started doing some heavy research on the subject. He started reading about parapsychology and then eventually he came across Life After Life by Raymond Moody in 1977. And uh, he got really excited about it. He started writing in the margins about different case studies that uh, he was having ideas for while reading the book because this book was sparking so much in him because everything else that he had read about, the people that he had spoken with, uh, about their near-death experiences. All of this was ringing true with what Raymond Moody was saying. So he got super excited about it and he kind of took a similar approach to Michael Sabom, except that he 
did it at a much wider scale. Um, he did a lot more research. He traveled all over the world and talked to people about these things. Um, he got, you know, really focused on this. He basically came up with the standardized version of the interview that you could give somebody to kind of compile data on these experiences. He would ask somebody what they saw, what happened to them, what they experienced in their near-death experience, and then he would have kind of a checklist of things that he would ask them about afterwards that were basically just common elements that Raymond Moody had spoken about and other things that he came up with along the way uh, doing his own research. So yeah, Raymond Moody pretty heavily credits him with legitimizing the, the work and making this something that was presentable in the scientific community in a way that Raymond Moody himself was not able to do, even though he was kind of the person that kickstarted this whole thing for everybody. So yeah, those are all researchers that I would recommend diving into if you want to go further into this topic. They all have books. They all have, you know, material out there that you can get your hands on. There's also other people, experiencers and, and researchers alike, like uh, Eben Alexander, uh, Penny Sartori. There, I, there's just so many I can't even begin to put together a complete list for you because I would just spend the entire episode doing that and I don't want to do that. Um, I actually want to move on to the last researcher we're going to be talking about and her book that I read is going to take us through the end of the episode. Um, her name is PMH Atwater and uh, she is actually doing the research now because of Kenneth Ring. Um, PMH Atwater had a near-death experience. She actually had three in a row in 1977 where she was uh, really sick. She was out for uh, in the hospital for most of the entire year of 1977 and she died in the hospital three times and was revived every time and each time she had a more intense near-death experience. Um, so she wrote a book about that called I Died Three Times in 1977. Clever title, I know. Um, I tried to get my hands on that book and I can't find it anywhere. Nobody even has it in their database. It is impossible to find. So that's another one to keep your eyes peeled for. If you know where to get a hold of that one, please let me know. I would love to buy it off of you if it's not an outrageous, you know, expense. <laughs> um, but yeah, the book that I did read by her uh, is called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Near-Death Experiences. And that might sound like kind of a lame place to go to do this research, but actually it is the most complete and extensive book that I have found on this work. Because she uses not only her own research that includes 3,000 adults and 277 kids, but she also includes all of the research of all of the people that I just mentioned to you, as well as several other researchers that I didn't have time to go into. Um, she did not only, like I said, her own research, but she poured through all of the texts available that she could get her hands on to make a full guide to the understanding of near-death experiences. And this book is thick and heavy, but it has so much good information in it. Um, if I had to recommend just 
one book other than Life After Life. I would say Life After Life would be the first book I would recommend because it's a quick read, it's short and easy, um, and it's really interesting. But if I had to recommend any other book if you wanted a more complete volume of what is going on in near-death experience research, I would highly recommend The Complete Idiot's Guide to Near-Death Experiences. Um, so yeah, in this book she lays out something that she came upon in her own research that I think is kind of helpful for classifying these things. She broke it down into four types. She said that there are four types of near-death experiences and in all of her research and in all the research that she has read about, everyone falls under one of these four types. Um, I'll go through the list here real quick. I'm going to do it a little out of order because I want to talk about things uh, in a specific order because it's my podcast and I can do that. Uh, <laughs> so the first type that she talks about is the initial experience. The second is the unpleasant or hellish experience. The third is the pleasant or heavenly experience. And the fourth is the transcendent experience. So starting with the first one, the initial experience, uh, this is an experience that is also called the non-experience, which I think is a bit misleading because the initial experience as she describes it ranges from very light, almost nothing happening, um, you know, someone who would fall into kind of a loving nothingness or they feel themselves kind of embraced by a loving void uh, maybe they'll have a brief out-of-body experience. Maybe they will, you know, hear a disembodied voice. Um, that's all the things that happen at the low end of the experience. But on the high end of the experience, it sounds like some of the more involved experiences that Raymond Moody talks about in his book. Um, this kind of covers the whole gambit of anything that's positive that happens that, um, you know, fits the normal models and, you know, isn't directly involving something more heavenly. So on the low end of the spectrum in this initial experience that, um, the experience that Kenneth Ring's patient that he talked about the first time he heard about a near-death experience, um, that would fall under the category of initial experience. That would be kind of a low-end one where the woman just kind of came out of her body, she heard a voice, she went back into her body, and that was it. That's really all she needed to have happen. That would be considered a very classic uh, non or initial experience because not very much happened. It was not very involved. And she kind of breaks each of these experiences down with a little bit of a psychological profile that goes with them. Um, she says that the common elements in the initial experience, as I said before, um, loving nothingness, friendly voice, brief out-of-body experience. Um, you know, she said that the people who have these experiences are people who usually need the least amount of proof of an afterlife. Um, she said, you know, these people need the least amount of jarring to actually change their point of view on life. This is something that is usually just a seed experience that kind of gives people a taste that there's something else out there and kind of sends them down uh, a slightly different path, a more open and loving path. Um, you know, they're still very profoundly changed by what happens in these experiences, uh, but they don't really need that much to get to that point where they're profoundly changed. 
Um, these kinds of experiences take place in 76% of children and 20% of adults is what she found in her research. And again, that's from a case sample of 3,000 adults and 277 children. So um, I actually want to talk a little bit about one of the more extreme initial experience examples she gives in here. Um, this experience happens to a woman named Tannis Proughton. I believe is how you pronounce that, uh, in Vancouver, Canada. She was 20 years old when it happened, um, and it basically was brought on by severe anxiety attacks. So she had such a very heavy pattern of anxiety uh, that she stopped taking care of herself entirely. She stopped eating, um, you know, she wasn't bathing herself. She said she got so thin that she had bruises all up and down her spine and on her hips because there was no padding for anything. Um, she was just in really terrible shape. And one night while she was laying on the couch, uh, her father was across the room and he was watching TV and she tried to call out to him because she started to feel something happen. She tried to say, oh God, what's happening to me? And she barely was able to squeak out any kind of noise and then she just faded out. And she reappeared she kind of found herself floating in the corner of the room looking down on her body looking at what was happening looking at her father trying to revive her and then she started to move out of the room and she said instinctively even though she was passing through the wall she was close to the ceiling so she kind of flinched to duck her head uh, and then realized that she was kind of just a point of consciousness and didn't need to do that um, at this time, she is, once she's outside of the room, she is just in this vast, like, open, dark expanse. Um, she felt as if she was in a tunnel, but she could see through the walls of the tunnel. There was no, uh, you know, she, she, there was no, nothing obstructing her view. She could just see straight out through this expanse, and she was moving very quickly in a, in a specific direction. And she saw out to her left, um, a couple of lights kind of floating out in the horizon, wandering around, and she got the impression, or she just kind of knew, that those were other souls in her similar experience that were, you know, outside of their bodies, and they didn't know where to go. She wanted to reach out and help them, but um, she was kind of being guided by what she realized was a presence to her right that was keeping her on the path going straight ahead where she was headed. And she said that as she kept going, she started to see a light ahead. And I'm actually going to read what happens from there on because it's really intense and I don't want to uh, muddy it up by trying to explain it. I'll just let her words ring true. So quoting directly from the book now, um, gradually a light started to appear ahead of me. Very rapidly, I was enveloped within the most divine, living, golden white light, my home. The joy, bliss, humility, and awe were beyond human capability to bear. The light was an infinite, loving, accepting being without form. It had personality. It communicated with me telepathically. It was pure truth. I was the light, and the light was me. I was still a unique, separate point of consciousness with the same sense of humor and awareness that I had always had, but the paradox was that I was more. I had become homogenous with the light. I was all love, wisdom, truth, peace, joy for all eternity. Human words fail to express this experience. Not only was the message of my true, 
true nature conveyed to me telepathically, but I experienced the spirit of the message. I felt it with every speck of my being. There was absolutely no possibility of hiding, distorting information, or lying in communication with the light. I fell madly in love with the spirit of truth. There was no concept of space or time in the greater reality. All takes place or exists in the eternal now. That is the last conscious memory I have of this experience. So as you can tell, that is a far cry from just hearing a voice in the corner of the room or feeling a slight loving embrace in the darkness. Um, you know, for something that is considered the non-experience, I would say that that one uh, really kind of shakes you, you know, that's, that's a really intense one. And to say that that is one of the experiences that is the least jarring out of all of these, I think is saying something, but anyways, I digress. I guess the reason it falls under that category is because it doesn't necessarily have any kind of, uh, heavenly vision and it doesn't necessarily fit the definition of the transient experience as you'll hear later. So yeah, now we're going to break out of the cycle here a little bit. I'm going to skip number two and come back to it in just a moment because number three is something I can talk about pretty quickly. Um, number three is the pleasant or heavenly experience, as I said earlier. And most of the experiences that I talked about in the Raymond Moody episode and some of the experiences I talked about today fall under either the initial experience or the pleasant or heavenly experience. Um, these two are by far the most common amongst children and adults. 19% um, of children have the heavenly experience and 47% of adults have uh, the heavenly experience. So um, that's why when Raymond Moody and these other researchers talk about these experiences, they say that most of the experiences they come in contact with are extremely positive and it's because the vast majority of them fall into one of these two categories. Um, the heavenly experience is uh, categorized by heavenly scenes, you know, gardens or uh, cities, uh, landscapes that are beautiful and resonant. Sometimes people say that they see uh, landscapes made of sound. Um, they often have loving, loving reunions with uh, dead loved ones, or sometimes you'll see religious figures there or light beings that will come and talk to you and give you information, uh, exchange information with you. It's uh, really a validating experience for people who uh, usually need some kind of reassurance that life matters in some way, that life has some kind of meaning. And they get that from this experience. Uh, she calls it the self-validating experience. Um, this is one, like I said, that's incredibly common, so I'm not really going to go into examples of it because we've already talked about so many of them, but yeah, I just, I have to talk about it because it's on the list. Um, so number two is where I'm going to go back to now, and that is the unpleasant or hellish experience. And that is a place I'm going to spend a little bit of time on because this is one that I didn't talk about at all in the last episode, and I... I don't know. I, I find this one very interesting. It is not very common at all. Um, only 3% of children and 15% of adults have something that would be categorized as an unpleasant or hellish experience. 
She also calls these experiences um, the inner cleansing or self-confrontation experience because she says that a lot of it just has to do with inner turmoil. That's kind of what the big part of this is. Um, these things are categorized by sometimes a threatening void. Um, so it'll be kind of similar to the non-experience in the sense that, you know, you'll sink into a void, but instead of the loving peace that comes over people with the, the initial experience, they will kind of feel threatened or they will feel like a fear or, you know, just a lot, all the unpleasantness. <laughs> they, they will have all of this uh, loneliness kind of creep over them inside of this void. Um, it's also characterized by kind of a stark limbo or purgatory experience. Um, she said startling scenes of indifference are very common. Uh, hauntings from one's own past are a big thing as well. Um, so for the psychological profile, as you might imagine, she says experiencers have deeply suppressed or repressed guilt, fear, and anger. Uh, some of these people even expect to be punished when they die. So as far as like expecting to be punished, that's when I wanted to come back to that experience that uh, Michael Grasso talks about in The Light Beyond. One of the ones that fascinated him was of a man who had a negative near-death experience where this guy, I believe he says he had been raised super religious, but he decided to rebel against that and not in like a healthy, I'm gonna get out there and have my own life kind of way, but in a, I am going to steal and get addicted to drugs and hurt as many people and cause as much suffering as I can kind of way. Um, in this guy's story, he intentionally overdosed on drugs and luckily somebody was there with him and caught him right as he was turning blue and you know luckily somebody was able to come and revive him um, he had what michael grasso describes as kind of the dante's inferno <laughs> experience um, he said that like you know monstrous visions of like demons and things tearing him apart and clawing at him, and it was just really overwhelming and terrifying for him. Uh, but the thing about this guy, and also the vast majority, almost everybody who has these type of unpleasant or hellish experiences, they come out of this and they say, this is exactly what I needed. Uh, I did not understand how my actions were affecting the people around me. I did not understand that this all has some kind of meaning and that I am just adding to suffering and I need to turn my life around. I need to love more deeply and more fully. I need to express myself. I need to listen to others. I, you know, this is like an extremely life-changing event. The people who talk about their unpleasant or hellish experiences will say often the exact same things and show the exact same patterns after their experience as the people who have had, you know, an initial or pleasant heavenly or transcendent experience. Like, these people's lives are permanently changed and they're so thankful for it in most cases. Um, so very quickly, I kind of wanted to touch on his experience specifically though that I just talked about with the uh, you know, hands, the, the demons, these creatures tearing him apart. 
This imagery is used pretty heavily in the movie Jacob's Ladder, if you've not seen that. Um, I would recommend it. It came out in the 70s. It's a horror movie. It's on HBO right now. Uh, I watched it pretty recently and I loved it and I was very surprised by their use in this movie of a Meister Eckhart quote to kind of change the perceptive of the main character. Um, you know, this isn't really giving away spoilers. Like I said, this movie came out in the 70s and also even with the amount of spoiling I'm about to do, the, the movie's still worth watching because there are other elements to it as well. But uh, yeah, <laughs> anyways, that aside, um, Meister Eckhart was a Christian mystic in, in Germany a long time ago, uh, hundreds of years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but uh, he was someone who was pretty famous for going into these ecstatic prayer or meditation states and bringing back information. Um, and it got him in trouble on more than one occasion because the established church did not like what he was saying and the information that he was bringing back. Um, in one of these states, though, he claims to have glimpsed hell. And the way he talked about hell is very reflected in the way that these people who have these hellish near-death experiences talk about it. Um, so the quote in Jacob's Ladder, like the, the, the conversation that is had where they reference Meister Eckhart, basically what they explain is that when Meister Eckhart glimpsed hell, what he said he saw was that the same beings that take people to hell are the same beings that take people to heaven. It's just all in how you choose to see them. If you are someone who is deeply attached to your life, if you are terrified, if you have so many things that you have uh, left behind, that you have left unsaid, if you have hurt a lot of people, if you have a lot of guilt or shame hanging off of you at all times, then when it's time for you to die, you will see these beings as demons coming to tear your life apart. They'll tell you, tear you to shreds. It'll be an incredibly terrifying experience. But if you are someone who has let go of those things, if you are someone who is ready to go, or someone who just doesn't have all of this guilt or fear that is weighing you down, then those exact same beings will appear to you like angels that are just coming to take you home. And that, I think, is so relevant to what this is talking about because uh, in the other unpleasant or hellish experiences that people have discussed, most of them have some kind of positive element to them uh, that is available to them. If these people were to just shift their focus from the dirty, evil, scary, or whatever thing that they're looking at to the light that is hovering above them, they feel a loving compassion. They feel safe. Um, and that is something that happens that in the examples that she gives in this book, um, without going into too much detail on any of them, they are, um, there's, there's, there's an experience that one child had uh, where he was hit by a car uh, running away from his mother who had just bought him ice cream. And uh, he, he ran into the middle of the road and got hit by this car. And uh, he had this near-death experience where he said that he saw what he perceived to be Satan. Uh, but the being that he described was kind of a lumpy, fleshy, slimy being that had like bony claws, uh, kind of cartoony uh, from the sounds of it. But um, 
this kid said that the the devil, Satan, or whatever you want to call it, told him that you've been a very bad boy. You've been terrible. Uh, you know, you've hurt your mother. You've hurt your friends. And these were all things that the kid kind of knew inside of himself. The child said when he was revived that he knew he had been a bad kid. He knew that he was causing a lot of pain around him and a lot of misery for people who didn't deserve it. So this was something that he was carrying around with him. And in this experience, he saw his uncle who died. And his uncle came and kind of guided him away from the devil. And in, the, in between, like while he was walking with his uncle, he said he looked up and saw a light that, you know, he felt love and uh, acceptance from, but that he couldn't really focus on it because he was too scared. So his uncle guided him into this room that um, he kind of described as a dungeon, but when he actually describes the room, it's literally just a big room with no windows and nothing in it. He was just in an empty kind of void box. And uh, in that room, he just kind of sat and contemplated how bad of a kid he had been <laughs> and how he had been treating people. And when this kid came out of it, uh, he was very thankful and, you know, he turned his life around. This was a very profound experience for this very young child. And the other experience that she gives the example of in this book as well has kind of similar elements, even though it's not quite the same. Um, there was another woman who died in childbirth from blood loss, and she said that um, she, as she was losing a lot of blood and starting to feel sick, her vision slowly went away, her hearing went away, and then she felt herself sink into a black void. And then she started falling down what she described as a tunnel, and she started trying to claw at the edges of the tunnel. She was terrified. Um, she wanted to get back to Earth so badly. Um, when she turned to look at the end of the tunnel, what she saw at first looked like a light, but then as she got closer, she saw it as a skull. It was a huge skull that was looking at her. Um, she eventually broke through that skull and then saw a light behind the skull that was a loving, accepting presence that then enveloped her and she woke up. Um, this woman, after she woke up and came to, she said, you know, I, I understood, I knew as I was dying that I had lived my life as a very materially obsessed person. She was always obsessed with owning things, having things the way she looked and the way she was perceived in society. Um, she had no interest in learning or talking to new people. She was a very shut off person from the world that just cared about her appearances. And with this experience, she was able to confront that and it changed her again permanently. It changed her for the rest of her life. Um, I would like to think that she probably was a better mother because of it, but you know, who am I to say? I, I'm just talking out of my ass right now. But anyways, that's kind of the gist of the unpleasant or hellish experience. Um, as I touched on with the first example given in this experience though, um, this is something that if you read a lot of other researchers, they will tell you that the unpleasant or hellish experience is something that um, is most commonly experienced by near-death experiences due to suicide. But PMH Atwater is very quick to point out that that was not what she found in her research at all. Um, she said that basically 
it really kind of depends on the things that we already talked about, the repressed or suppressed guilt, fear, or anger, um, and the expectation of punishment, the expectation that you have done something wrong, so if there is anything afterwards, you know, bad things are going to happen to you. Uh, those things play a lot bigger role in the unpleasant or hellish experience. Now, some people do decide to take their own lives because they are wrestling with these things. So no matter what kind of near-death experience cause, whatever, no matter what might have caused the experience, they are more likely to have an unpleasant, hellish experience. Um, but there are also those who have committed suicide out of just, you know, sheer depression, sheer loss of will and loss of uh, sight and meaning. And those people more often have the pleasant or heavenly experience or the initial experience. They'll have something that's more reassuring. They'll, you know, see dead relatives. They'll see uh, beings of light. They will have encouragement thrust upon them and they will be, you know, brought back with this renewed uh, joy or this renewed hope for meaning in life. And uh, I don't know, I, I think that that's just fascinating. Um, the idea of suicide attempts leading to near-death experiences is just really wild to me. Um, this is something that in the Sylvia Cranston book that I talked about in the last two reincarnation episodes, um, they talk about when they give the section in that book on near-death experiences, uh, Sylvia Cranston herself is a therapist, and she said that she had given Life After Life by Raymond Moody to several of her patients who had said that they had contemplated suicide in the past. And um, she was kind of iffy when she did that. She was like, I'm not sure if this is entirely ethical, but I think that this might be a good thing to do. She brought it up to other therapists and psychologists who had done similar research on near-death experiences and reincarnation and those kinds of things. And she found that a lot of them had actually done the exact same thing with great results. People find this research and they connect with it and uh, it doesn't necessarily pull them out of their depression. It doesn't pull them out of their, um, you know, whatever is actually bothering them, but it will make them far less likely to go that far as to take their own lives. And the only explanation I can really give for that, you know, again, from my own experience, when I was younger um, and I had suicidal thoughts at times, uh, thankfully it hasn't been too present in my adult life. It was something that I struggled with more at an early age. But the, the idea that made me so comfortable with those thoughts was the idea of just everything ending, just lights out, it's all over, there's nothing. And I think the information about this research could kind of pull people out of that thinking because something that other people who have had near-death experiences, especially in the unpleasant realm that were caused by suicide attempts, uh, something that they bring up is that the problems and the things that they were struggling with when they attempted suicide uh, were all still present. They were all still within them 
when they died. They were just on the other side and they didn't have a body to deal with these problems, to actually live out these situations. And these people who had these hellish or unpleasant experiences in this space, um, all of them, every single one of them that I have read about, whether it's from suicide or not, says that no matter how bad it got, they all somehow knew within themselves that this experience was also temporary, that they could change this whenever they got around to it, whenever they figured out how to detach themselves from this and acknowledge that loving light or presence that was hovering away from them, that they knew that this wasn't something that I'm going to experience forever. This is something that is passing. And I think that that's important to keep in mind when we think about these hellish and unpleasant experiences. Um, yeah, I don't really know where to go with that from there. So I think I will just go ahead and move on to the transcendent experience. Now, this is one that I find the most fascinating stories from because the transcendent experience um, is something that goes beyond all of the things we just talked about. All of the other experiences kind of follow a formula and the transcendent experience is kind of just its own thing entirely. So in her description of these experiences, PMH Atwater says that these are characterized by expansive revelations of other worlds or dimensions, uh, scenes beyond reference in the physical plane, uh, greater truths are revealed and like these things are just completely mind-blowing they're off the charts as far as um, you know the uh, as far as the scope of the other experiences that, that are had um, only two percent of children have this experience and 18 percent of adults so it's a pretty low number um, less children have this experience in her research than have the hellish experience, actually. Um, but again, her swath of children she was sampling was only 277 children, so who knows, out of that many children, how, how, if it's easy to get a good picture as to what the percentages of this are actually like. Um, so in this transcendent experience, a lot of really crazy things can happen. Um, as I described already, uh, revelations of other worlds or dimensions is like a really big thing to try to wrap your head around. Um, I read an entire book that was uh, written by an experiencer named Natalie Sudman. I also mentioned her in the last episode, um, basically referring to the idea of the astral body that people seem to have in some cases of near-death experiences. Um, she was the one who kind of described holding that shape of the body as kind of a habit of the soul or the consciousness. It was something that you're just kind of used to doing after years and years of doing it and several incarnations of doing it. So when you're in this in-between space, then you kind of just hold on to that shape of the body because it's what you're used to doing. Uh, she's, you know, I found that incredibly interesting. But the whole of her story is absolutely mind-blowing. I would recommend looking up her book. Uh, it's called The Application of Impossible Things. And it's basically just her grappling with her near-death experience and trying to understand what to make of it. 
Um, her experience happened when she was in Iraq. Um, she was in a Humvee driving down the road towards a military base and her, uh, her vehicle was hit by a roadside IED and she was blown up. Um, she describes hearing a pop and that was it. Then she just blinked into another space. And in this other space, she describes it as a uh, type of arena. And she was standing in the middle of this arena on kind of a stage or a diaz. And um, she was in the exact form that she had been blown up in. She was wearing the same fatigues. Uh, you know, her hair was all messed up. She said that, you know, looking at herself because she was able to look at herself in this situation because um, her consciousness was not only in the form that she was presenting, but also in other places at the same time, which I'll get into a little bit more when I try to describe the next few things that happen. Um, but in this experience, she's in the middle of this arena and the arena suddenly fills with hundreds of beings in white robes. And the thing about it is that she said that out of all of these hundreds of beings, she felt she knew every single one of them. And she was attached to and had a history with every single one of these beings in this space. And she knew in this moment that she had made an agreement to come and take on this body, to be a human being, have these experiences, and bring back some kind of representation or information for this group of people. And that this experience she was having, this getting blown up, was kind of a checkpoint as in like, this is what I've learned so far uh, in a perfectly functioning body. And now I'm gonna go back and learn what it's like to live in a body that has a lot of complications and a lot of, um, you know, <laughs> missing abilities. I'm not going to be able to see out of one eye. I'm not going to be able to use my right hand hardly at all. You know, we're adding complication now, but this is kind of where I'm at so far. And she kind of gives a presentation, but also um, pulls from within herself kind of a physical representation of all of her experiences in this human body. And then it disseminates into the crowd. Uh, all of these hundreds of beings receive this information, absorb it, and then start discussing it in a very organized fashion. She said that all of them were talking at once, but nobody was talking over each other. And there was actually no verbal speaking. Uh, it was all telepathic, but it, she said it was somehow simultaneously all at once, but entirely organized. And she could tell every facet of what was happening. Everybody in this crowd was communicating with absolutely everybody else in the crowd on a singular level while also having this huge group discussion. And there were disagreements, but they were very respectful and they were just, well, I see this this way and somebody else sees this differently and that's okay. Those two things can coexist. And it was just a, a completely loving and accepting uh, exchange of information and ideas about the information that she was giving. Um, so while this is taking place, she says that she has to describe these things in a 
chronological order of some kind, but that, that they did not exactly happen that way. That all of these experiences seemed to happen at once. Because while she was on this dais giving this presentation, she was also watching herself in the Humvee, uh, you know, being exploded. <laughs> uh, but she said time was kind of paused in this moment, but she could still consciously see herself in that space while also seeing herself in this space and was also in a couple of other spaces as well. She said that she moved from the Diaz like uh, Coliseum type space into another space where uh, she was able to basically work on her spirit, work on her consciousness, because she knew that she had already agreed to go back and continue living in this body, but she also felt incredibly tired and worn out and like she really didn't feel like doing it anymore. So um, this other space that she was in was a healing space and there were, she said, I believe, I can't remember, it was two or three other beings there that were all working on her and with her and helping her heal different parts of her psyche and her consciousness and her soul and giving her the strength and energizing her basically to get ready to go back into this body. So also while that is happening, she is simultaneously in another space that is observing the physical reality that she's in, but from a slightly different dimension. So she's there with a couple of other beings who are basically helping her plan what her re-entry into this body is going to be like. And they're looking at her situation and she describes uh, seeing the damage done to her body as being almost, if not entirely, too severe for her to have even survived. There's shrapnel in her face that is like carving out chunks of her skull. Uh, she most certainly would have had a piece of her brain had to be removed if these uh, injuries were to have stayed as they were when she looked at it from this angle. But what started happening was her and the other beings in this space started playing with the shrapnel in the car and how it was affecting her body. They started healing different portions of her body. She said that when she initially looked at it, her right hand that she had been leaning on in the back of this car had been almost completely severed by a piece of shrapnel. Like her hand would have been completely gone. Her wrist was hanging on by basically a flap of skin, she said. But uh, these beings were able to kind of heal her arm in a way that it would still be damaged, but that it did not have to be or would not be completely severed. Um, same thing with some, with some uh, wounds in her legs and also the wound in her head. They healed that up. Um, and then they started playing with different configurations of what her life would be like from that point on. And she said that it was kind of, uh, you know, a fun experiment kind of energy that was happening amongst them. Um, they were helping her decide what kind of ailments she was going to live with for the rest of her life after this experience. And they were laughing and joking about them. You know, they would move one configuration around and they're like, well, if you do this, you will have 
um, some kind of brain damage that will debilitate you in these ways. And then they would think like, well, that's, she would say, you know, that would probably be pretty miserable. I don't know <laughs> if that's the kind of experience I want to have necessarily. And they would laugh and joke about that. And she says that now in her body, when she's recounting this experience, that it seems really macabre and brutal. But in this other space, she understood how temporary this all was and that she was all doing it for the experience of bringing this back into this other place where she actually was from. She felt that this other side was home and where she belonged and that this was just kind of a temporary mission that she had taken on. So she's playing with the, the way that this is affecting her body and they eventually get it to a configuration where she's blind in one eye, uh, she has to basically learn how to walk again and a few other situations with uh, you know, the joints and, and uh, the shrapnel in her body, but that she will be mostly uh, functional you know, that she will be able to overcome these things and have these different experiences. And those are the wounds that she was left with. Um, something else that's pretty wonderful and unique about her experience specifically is that while she was in the hospital, she started kind of playing around with the memories of what, was hap what had happened to her, what her near-death experience was. And she realized that when she quieted her mind and kind of got into a meditative or contemplative state, that she could re-enter that zone. She had the she had the impression while it was happening that it was outside of time and space in some kind of eternal moment, as I've tried to describe in so many other uh, podcasts and situations. If you've listened to this, then you've heard me talk about the eternal now, but that's where she felt like she was. She was in this eternal space. And when she quieted her mind and got into this meditative state, she felt like she could tap back into that moment, that she was right back in that same space, that she would just blip into this eternal now whenever she needed to be recharged or relive it or had questions about what was going on. So during the writing of this book, she was constantly going in and examining it. Something she realized over time is that there were certain elements of the experience that she could project a different vision onto and there were other elements of the experience that if she tried to change in any way, shape, or form, she would completely fall out of the meditation and wouldn't be able to, like her mind would just go completely blank. She wouldn't be able to remember anything that was happening. She would have to start all over again. So just for a few examples of that, um, the, the beings in the white robes, those beings, she said she knew in that moment that that was just a projection she was seeing of something that she would be comfortable with in the persona that she had kind of taken on in this body. This is kind of a neutral religious figure, uh, vaguely religious figure, that uh, she, you know, felt comfortable interacting with. Uh, she said that, you know, if the if they had appeared to her as cockroaches or, you know, drooling St. Bernard's, she might have been really distracted. But in this situation, you know, these white robes, they got the job done. But when she goes back and is in this space, if she wants to project a different image onto these beings, she can. She can't change the number of beings around her. And she also can't change any of the information that was exchanged in between. Otherwise, she falls right out of it and it just stops working. She's not in the space anymore. But if she changes just the visual effects of what's happening, then everything stays the same. Everything else stays exactly the same, but she can, you know, change them into weird looking monsters or, 
um, you know, just presences, being like balls of light, things like that. You know, she can make them look like aliens. Whatever she wants them to look like, they can look like that. Uh, but when she tries to change herself, um, she says, you know, if I try to change the fatigues I'm in, if I try to fix my hair or make myself look more attractive in some way, she says that, again, she's kicked right out of it. She can't change that. So it's really interesting that there are elements that she can play with and elements that she can't. Uh, this whole story is completely fascinating. She explains some of this such, uh, some of this stuff, excuse me, in such great detail. I would really recommend this book if you are interested in this type of thing at all. Uh, I found it incredibly fascinating. Um, and yeah, so there's that one, and then there's one other transcendent experience that I want to speak about. And this one was had by a 33-year-old lighting and cameraman named uh, Melon Thomas Benedict out in California. Uh, Melon Thomas's case is pretty famous, actually. He wrote a book about it called Journey Through the Light and Back. I've looked all over for this book and I haven't been able to find it anywhere either. So this is another one of those that if you've got a line on that, please let me know. I would love to get my hands on this. Um, you know, I've done a lot of research on this stuff, but this one really stands out to me as one that I want to know uh, as much about as I can because it's fascinating. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit about his case from this book, uh, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Near-Death Experiences. But uh, I'm also going to fill in some gaps with other information that I've read other places. Um, there's a link I'm going to leave in the show notes down there that will lead you to the full story as I've been able to find it. But um, the, the explanation that I read I know is leaving out a lot of details as well. And I really just want to get my hands on the full explanation because, like I said, it's incredible. Um, so, yeah. Millen Thomas was a lighting and cameraman, like I said, but at a certain point in his career, he got really fed up and decided he wanted to work in a more uh, secluded line of work, so he started working on stained glass. Right after he started working on stained glass, he found out that he had a brain tumor. Um, this brain tumor turned out to be inoperable, and they put him in hospice. Uh, he really had no hope at all. They just were counting down the days until he died, essentially. Um, the thing that Mellon Thomas pointed to about this that he saw as uh, not necessarily ironic, but maybe more causal, was that he had spent his entire adult life talking about, thinking about, and, and viewing humanity as a cancer. That was kind of his internal mantra, was, you know, humanity is a cancer. And with that mantra, he kind of thinks that he caused his brain cancer to happen from that thinking. Thinking about the cancer that he believed he was caused his brain to grow this inoperable tumor, um, which I find, you know, pretty interesting as well. But um, so, yeah, he has this tumor. His situation keeps getting worse and worse. And, uh, you know, in hospice, he one day wakes up and realizes that I am going to die today. This is the day. I know it's going to happen. So um, he'd done a little bit of research on philosophy about what happens after death and, um, you know, different religious points of view. He read about Krishna, 
Buddha, Jesus. He read about all the, you know, major religious figures. He was just kind of looking for any comfort about maybe what he was potentially about to go through. And um, like I said before, he woke up one morning and realized that today's the day I'm going to die. So he asked his nurse, he called her in and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to die today. I know it's going to happen, but would you leave my body alone for a little while? Like, just don't report it. Let me, just let me be here for a little while. And, um, you know, she didn't really know what to make of that exactly, but, you know, she said, okay, yeah, that's fine. So over the course of the day, he dies. And during his death experience, he starts to have what would typically be, uh, you know, recognized as the heavenly experience and started, you know, floating up a tunnel towards a light. And in the middle of it, he recognizes what's happening and he stops it. He asks, and uh, actually, I'll just start reading the book from here. So it says, just as he reached the light at the end of the tunnel, he shouted, stop a minute. This is my death, and I want to think about this. By consciously intervening, he willfully changed his near-death scenario into an exploration of realms beyond imagining, and a complete overview of history from the Big Bang to 400 years into the future. Then he was pulled through the light away from the tunnel, far away from Earth, past stars and galaxies, past imagery and physical realities, to a multi-angled overview of all worlds and all creation, and past even that into a second light at the edge of existence where vibrations cease. He saw all wars from the beginning. Uh, he saw species operating like cells in a greater whole. By merging into the matrix of his soul, he confronted the no thing from which all things emerge. Mellon Thomas saw planetary energy systems in detail and how human thoughts influence these systems in a simultaneous interplay between past, present, and future. He learned that Earth is a great cosmic being. He was aware of falling back into his body after deciding to return uh, from his journey. As near as his hospice caretaker could determine, his experience took about 90 minutes. His doctor's assessment, though, was the most shocking. The cancer he had once had completely vanished. Um, and now this is quoting Melon Thomas directly. He says, Because this happened to me, my fear is gone, and my perspective has changed. You know, we are a very young species. The violence that formed the earth is in us too. As the earth is mellowing, so are we as people. Once pollution slows, we will reach a period of sustained consciousness. We have evolved as life forms from single-celled organisms to complex structures. And finally, we will evolve to a global brain. Unemployment levels will never be again once they, what they once were, which will force a redefinition of human rights. We will adopt a more nurturing type of consciousness, freeing the mind for exceptional achievement. I now know that all the answers to the world's problems are just beneath the surface in us all. Nothing is unsolvable. Since his experience, Millen Thomas has been flooded with ideas for inventions and the marketing plans necessary to promote them. He has been granted a number of U.S. patents and is actively engaged in the advanced DNA research on the frontiers of science. So 
that is what this book has to say about that experience and doing my best to fill in the gaps on my own here. Uh, I'd like to point out a few other things that I read about that I thought were equally fascinating. So um, before when he shoots off into this, you know, far away tunnel uh, where he's past Earth and the stars and the galaxies and all of that stuff, um, he starts to have a conversation with the being that is the light that he's approaching because he realizes that this light that he's approaching is a being. And when he starts talking to this being, he starts asking it questions and having this like telepathic conversation with it. And um, as he's talking to it, he starts asking it about the things that he had read before. And as he starts asking questions that he has about Christianity, the being morphs into a figure that he would recognize as Jesus. As he starts asking other questions, he, you know, morphs into Krishna and then Buddha. And then, um, you know, as he's talking about other things, the, the being morphs into a mandala that is just these beautiful shapes that unfold and envelop him. And um, I don't remember if this is part of the same experience or if this is something that happens later. But he also says that he got a glimpse of all of the different heavens that belong to all of the different religions. And the way he kind of explains it is that when you die and you really expect there to be a certain image of heaven, that um, there is a place, there is a part of you, a part of your soul or consciousness or whatever you want to call it, that kind of breaks itself off to experience that heaven. And that heaven can be experienced for as long as you want to until you're ready to move on and do something else. Um, so he said that he saw, you know, the Christian heaven where there was a throne and a city and, a, you know, streets of gold and everybody was just worshiping and praising. Um, he said that that one in particular was very boring to him. He didn't enjoy it at all. He was like, I don't know how anybody would last more than a few minutes here. This is, seems like just a place I would want to move on from pretty quickly. Um, he said that he was greatly interested in the uh, hunting grounds of the Native Americans. Uh, some of their beliefs hold that there is a you know vast hunting grounds afterwards. Uh, he talked about the uh, afterlife of the ancient Egyptians and the Greeks. And, you know, all these different things that he saw, uh, all these different visions and versions of heaven. And he said that there were, you know, people exploring all of them, uh, you know, looking through them and, and experiencing them for every angle. But that he understood while looking at them that this was not a permanent state either. This was not a place that you go and stay. This is a place where you go and see what it's like and move on much like you do here in a body. Um, he also mentions hell briefly and the version of hell that he talks about is very similar to everything that I talked about earlier. He said that he saw people in a very dark place where they were focused on very dark things that were internal, that they were struggling with things, they were struggling with guilt, and that they were kind of torturing themselves and making these torturous visions for themselves, but that just above them at all times there was a light shining on them that at any time if they wanted to or if they chose to, they could turn and look at that light and focus on the light and move away from that place. So that the option was always available to get out of there and that the only reason that they were there is because they wanted to be there. Um, and that's pretty common thread as well. So he has that experience 
And then, you know, he goes passed out to the Big Bang. He sees all of this stuff happen. And he then gets the full overview of everything that happens, as he says, up until 400 years in the future. And this all happened to him in the 80s. So, you know, we still got 360 years to go to get to the future that he's describing here, uh, at least to a T. And I think that there's a lot of interesting points that he, you know, makes in this about what is going to happen in the future. We're already at a level where unemployment levels are changing for what seems to be permanently. And we're, you know, starting to examine our definition of human rights as they are now. We're in the middle of kind of the tumultuous period that could potentially bring forward the future that he had this vision of. Um, I'm going to talk in other episodes about future predictions because there is kind of a paradox that happens when we start talking about these things because yes, there is a space outside of space and time that, um, you know, calling it a space is paradoxical enough, but there is a place outside of space and time that, um, everything is happening all at once and you know everything that will happen has already happened it's all just there in this eternal now moment however when it comes to predicting the future and what's going to happen the thing that we always seem to run into is that all of this is dependent on the choices of all of us the collective has a choice in the matter as to how things go so we are unfolding and creating the future as we move through the present. And that is something that when people look into the future, they can see things one way. And what seems to happen, at least in experiments that have been done in remote viewing and other things, is that the further out in the future you go, the more choices have to be made to get to that point. So it becomes a less and less definite picture. Um, I think that there might be some things in here that, that could be definite, they could be anchors and things that we will reach for sure. But you know, there's really no way of knowing that. And we'll just have to try to make the choices that might line us up to this. Um, right now, we're obviously dealing with all kinds of global catastrophes, uh, weather patterns, and uh, you know global warming and the pollution has not slowed down at all but that is something that we will eventually have to deal with and i think that we are i think that we're on our way to doing that um not to derail this conversation too much from near-death experiences but something that i heard recently that i found kind of encouraging from a spiritual teacher that i may talk about on here at some point in time um it was talking about how the time that we're going through right now um, seems like everything is falling apart. It seems like everything is, 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 you know, collapsing around us. And that's because in a sense it is. But the metaphor that they made for this is that we are basically in a boat that is capsized. We are upside down in the water right now. And we have somehow convinced ourselves that this boat, that this upside down is normal, that this is okay. You know, we've rearranged our rooms on the ceilings of, of all the rooms. We have our tables and our beds and everything set up on the ceiling and we're just pretending like it's normal to be underwater. And what's happening right now 
is that the boat is riding itself. It's turning over. And the process of that is going to look very violent on the inside. When you're inside this boat and it turns over, you're going to, you know, all the water that you've gotten used to is going to rush out of the room. Uh, your tables, your bed, your chairs, everything that you have is going to, you know, rush to one side. It's going to fall to the ground and then fall upside down onto the floor. And the whole thing is going to be a huge mess. It's going to look nothing like you thought it was going to. The entire world is about to turn upside down. That is going to be a hard process to go through. But it will result in us being above water again. It will result in us coming to a place where, you know, maybe we will be able to make some of these things happen that he's talking about. Um, like I said, I'm going to leave a more complete overview of what he experienced in the uh, show notes down there because there's just so much information and so much that uh, I would love to talk about in it, but I'm not going to be able to get to because I'm already at an hour and a half and I don't want this episode to go on too much longer. So, um, yeah, so that I think is maybe my favorite example of the transcendent experience. Um, partially just because I find it incredibly hopeful and the things that he says about the future are incredibly interesting to me. Um, but yeah, so moving on from there, uh, I can go ahead and start wrapping this up by talking about why near-death experiences are so important when it comes to the idea of reincarnation. And if that's not obvious to you, uh, it's because the idea of near-death experience is showing us that we are more than our bodies is the first step in the process of understanding that we can come back. If there's something that comes back, then there must be something left over when the body's done. Um, that's kind of the first step of the process. And when it comes down to the research of PMH Atwater and other things she had in this book, um, I, I'm not going to read any more out of it or, or go into specific details about a lot of these things because she doesn't go into specific details about a lot of these things. When you look at this book and you look up the word reincarnation in the uh, index in the back, it takes you to a section where she literally just says that most people who have near-death experiences end up believing reincarnation and not just believing it, but they say that they know it as fact. And since she is one of these people, she has had this experience as well. And this is something that she puts her, her uh, you know, belief in. This is something that she holds as well. Um, several other people who have had this experience that I've listened to talk about it. Uh, you know, Natalie Sudman, um, you know, Melon Thomas even, the part where he is falling back into his body in this experience, he explains that after this incredible revelation that he's been given where he's seen, you know, past, present, and future, he's seen all worlds, he's seen all species working together as these different organisms and all of these things, he thought that that was the full death experience and that was what he was going to have on the other side and that his reapproaching earth meant that he was going to reincarnate into a new body. He thought he was about to be creating a new body for himself to be born into. And that's not what happened. He just came right back into the body that he was laying in. Um, so he was ready for reincarnation in that moment. He took it as fact. That is something that 
happens over and over and over again. Um, Eben Alexander is another big one. I've mentioned him before. Um, he was a you know brain surgeon that had this really insane near-death experience, and none of it pointed to reincarnation. None of his experience actually made him you know experience anything that resembled you know coming back or choosing a new body or anything like that. He didn't see past lives or anything like that. But he just knew in his heart when he woke up that reincarnation was the way things go down. It's something that just clicks with so many people. And there are people who have near-death experiences that do remember past lives. It's something that happens very often in children. It's um, a recurring theme in PMH Atwater's research that she did when she was talking to children. A lot of them would see past lives in their near-death experience, or they would come back from these near-death experiences with memories of past lives. It happens to adults as well, it's just not as common. Um, something else that happens that is really wild that is very similar to things that happen in the children who remember past lives scenario. Um, sometimes people will come back from these near-death experiences and they will remember some of the in-between time between their past life and their current life. And uh, there are examples in the book of, you know, kids who saw their parents decide to have a baby. And, you know, they chose their parents, they chose to be born to them, and they waited for them to conceive so that they could construct their own body inside the womb of their mother. And these children that have these memories, and some adults as well, will say that they remember specifically choosing the genes that would make up their body and, like, what their eyes would look like, what their hair would look like, you know. Um, there was even one man with cerebral palsy that remembered choosing to have cerebral palsy. He remembered being in the womb or, you know, his consciousness creating himself in the womb. He remembered turning on the gene that would give him cerebral palsy on purpose. And after he had that memory, he looked at his condition in a completely different way. Um, you know, this is something that we will probably talk about a lot more in the next installation of this reincarnation series. We're going to talk about um, past life regression, hypnotic regression. And uh, there's some really interesting things that have been done in that realm as well. But, uh, you know, a lot of those people remember these types of things as well. They, they are able to tap into these moments. And as I mentioned, the children who remember past lives, um, you know, there was that story I told in that episode about the kid named James who remembered being a fighter pilot in World War II. He had a very similar memory uh, of, you know, the in-between time of being born. He, uh, when he was very young, when he was younger than when he started putting together the pieces of the, uh, you know, World War II scene exactly, he started talking about uh, when, before he was born and when he was in heaven. And his mom asked him, you know, where is heaven? And he just kind of generally gestured around. He's like, it's just right here. You just can't see it. Uh, <laughs> but he said that he watched his parents uh, at a resort in Hawaii decide to have a baby and conceive him. He was there for that whole process, that whole conversation. He was a part of it. 
And, you know, that might sound kind of creepy to some people, but, I mean, he was choosing them. He was waiting for them to decide that they were going to have a kid because he had already decided that these are going to be my parents. Um, and that's really wild that that experience comes up in his experience as well as um, in the near-death experiences of other people. There's, a, there's overlap there. So I don't know. There's so much overlap in all of these different categories. And I find it all endlessly fascinating. But I have kind of reached the end of my rope as far as what I can talk about with near-death experiences. Um, this has been so fun. I enjoy and love reading these books. But having read so many of them and diving so deeply into this topic for this podcast, I am also happy to finally move on into the realm of hypnotic regression and uh, start to bring this reincarnation conversation to a close. Um, I want to thank you so much for making it through to the end of this episode. I have... Thankfully, by the skin of my teeth, kept it just under two hours. And uh, I'm going to try to keep it that way by wrapping this up quickly. But, um, yeah, I want to take a minute to thank everybody who listens to this show, who has encouraged me. I keep getting messages from people, and I appreciate it every time it happens. Um, I don't always know exactly what to say back if you're trying to start a conversation or if you're just telling me good job. Um, I'm always down to have conversations, though. You can get a hold of me on Twitter and on Instagram. My handle on both is just at monolithseeker. And you can send me emails to uh, monolithseekerpod at gmail.com. Uh, nobody's really taken me up on that yet. I just mostly get people on Instagram and Twitter. But uh, feel free to send me emails, uh, book recommendations, uh, experiences you've had, conversations you want to start with me, things you think I want to or I should cover on this show, whatever it may be, I'm open to it. I am just happy to hear uh, from the people who listen to and enjoy this show. Uh, I would love to kind of have more of a sense of community around these things. That's kind of the reason I started this. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Thank you so much for being who you are. Um, and until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Uh, love everybody. I don't know. I don't know how to end these things, so I don't know. Goodbye. Goodbye.